In part one of this podcast, we covered a potpourri of analgesics and analgesic adjuncts for all kinds of common painful conditions that we see in the ED. We're going to switch gears now from pain and talk about nausea and vomiting. Now, there are a few things that catch our attention more when we're cruising down the hallways of our ED than the patient who's incessantly vomiting. So I'd like to cover first what works for nausea and vomiting, and second, whether adding antiemetics to morphine to prevent nausea and vomiting is of any benefit. Now, there are many choices here. There's metoclopramide, there's ondansetron, there's dimenhydrinate, which we all know is Gravol in Canada. There's prochlorperazine, there's haloperidol, there's even inhaled isopropyl alcohol from an alcohol swab, and the list goes on from there. Dr. Lexgen, what are the best ED medications for nausea and vomiting, generally speaking? You know, I think this is an issue where if you ask 10 different eMERGE docs, you'll get 10 different answers. I used to use Gravol, then I switched to metoclopramide. Now I usually go to Andansetron. And from the literature that I've read, doesn't seem to matter what you use. There's nothing better than any of the other ones. All you're doing is giving your patients different sets of side effects. So I don't think that there's a real good answer to what to use. Um, now, maybe when we get to the isopropyl alcohol, we'll get a bit of a different answer. But all these other drugs, I really don't think that there's anything in terms of benefits to choose from. It's the side effects that you should be using to make your choice. Yeah. And you said, you know, they don't seem to be any different from each other. But the fascinating thing about this literature to me is that Actually, in almost all the trials that are done, they aren't any different from placebo either. And that's a bit of a problem. I'm not sure it fits with what we see clinically, but that's why we run trials, right? And those are really strong. And I don't think it's possible that they these drugs could have no benefit because I think if you look at other populations, you know, uh, in gastroenteritis, ondansetron has been shown pretty convincingly to decrease the need for IVs and admission in pediatric uh, uh, gastro. There's a bunch of trials with anesthetics. Ketamine, if you give these agents, there's a lot less vomiting post-op. So maybe we just haven't run the right trials in emergency medicine, but I find, find this question absolutely fascinating because pretty universally, these trials are negative, i.e. no better than placebo. Yeah, I was amazed when I read the, the Cochrane database review from 2015 that showed that the only statistically significant change from baseline nausea scores at 30 minutes was for droperidol, which we don't even have access to anymore. I do wonder whether most of our patients would probably just settle on their own without any medication. I think this is one of those issues where it doesn't matter what the trials are going to show. You'll never convince most eMERGE docs to not give something. I, I think that might be true. I think there's a couple things to to consider with this. So, so number one, uh, a major problem with these trials is people get nauseated and vomit for a large number of different reasons. And so mixing them all together doesn't make a lot of sense. I, it makes sense to me that treating a, a, an obstruction is going to be very different from pyelonephritis is going to be very different from cyclic vomiting. So I, I think we may be just painting with too broad a brush to figure out how, how to work. But I think the other thing is 
what these trials uh, tell you is all of them look at nausea or vomiting at 30 minutes. And at that point, it's negative. But the reason it's negative is not because these drugs didn't work, but because everybody in the placebo group is better. And I think that's a really important point to take to our, our patients. We rush to these drugs, but nausea and vomiting uh, come in waves. Uh, and so often, if you can get patients through 20 minutes of feeling really, really lousy, half an hour later, they they will feel feel better. So al- although I agree with you, Joel, I, I still use Ondansetron. On I think we we probably overuse these drugs because a lot of patients are going to feel better uh, later and we're probably not looking at the right measure. You probably need to be looking at, you know, total number of vomiting uh, rehydration over 24 hours rather than just if everybody's feeling better at 30 minutes because everybody feels better at 30 minutes. The other thing is Justin's right that there's a whole variety of reasons why people get nauseous and throw up. And one of the main ones is pain. And I think that if we treat the pain, that's going to relieve the nausea and vomiting without using these drugs. All right. So yeah, that's sort of the the second part of the question. But before we get onto the question of whether we should be giving anti-emetics with analgesics uh, like morphine in the emergency department, I think it's, you know, suffice to say that a lot of these patients will get better on their own. Most of us are going to give something and we know that they all work about the same. And so really we should go through the side effects profiles and which drugs we should be avoiding in which patients. So there's the obvious ones like uh, on Dancitron, we should be avoiding in someone with, uh, with a prolonged QT, for example, a known prolonged QT. In terms of the other medications, Dr. Lexton, could you just go over for our listeners which antiemetics we should be avoiding in which patients? Well, so let's start with with Gravol. Gravol is an antihistamine. It will sedate people. So you don't want people to have a decreased level of consciousness. So somebody who's got respiratory issues, perhaps, and you don't want the side effects the antihistamine side effects, which roll over into also anticholinergic side effects. Um, so skip gravel in those people. Metoclopramide, the main one is the feeling that I'm worried about is this feeling of intense restlessness, which I've seen a few times. And people just can't sit still. They're getting up, they're wandering around, and they, they can get really uncomfortable from that. And then we have the the antipsychotics, so that's the um, promethazine group of drugs. So again, the anticholinergic side effects from these kinds of products and the sedating issues come into play. I think in my mind, the one big one that we overlook, the honest truth is in terms of the really bad side effects, the things that scared people off, the black box warnings, most of these drugs are pretty safe. I sometimes forget, and so it's worth reminding me uh, so that all of these anti-psychotic-based uh, ones, so the metoclopramide, the prochlorperazine, the droperidol, the haldol, uh, all affect dopamine in your brain. And so when an elderly patient at risk for uh, Parkinson's, you got to be really careful. That's sort of the one big thing that I tend to forget. There's been some recent data on isopropyl alcohol aromatherapy, which I've actually started trying out based on the few patients that I've tried it out on. It doesn't seem to work as well as the literature might suggest. Justin, can you go over the literature for us for isopropyl alcohol inhalation therapy? 
Yeah, this one's a little bit weird, but I have to admit that the, the studies are, are quite good. And it might fit really well with what we were saying earlier in, in that nausea comes in these waves. And so if you can get somebody through a you know 10 or 20 minute period without having to give a, a bigger medication, it, it might help. There's really only two RCTs. And these have been talked about a lot in the in the last two years. Uh, one was compared to placebo. One was compared to ondansetron. And in both cases, inhaled isopropyl alcohol looked better. It's not a huge difference, but on a scale of of zero to 10, sniffing isopropyl alcohol drops uh, your rating of nausea uh, by about three points. And all, all that means is you rip open one of those pads that you used to wipe uh, the skin before starting an IV, uh, hold it a couple centimeters in front of the nose, and just tell the patient to take uh, deep, deep inhalations. So you're, you're going to get about 3 out of 10 drop with isopropyl alcohol in the study that compared to ondansetron. Ondansetron only dropped by about 1 out of 10 in the same time frame. So, you know, that's, that's relatively good. Uh, these are relatively good uh, studies. They're not perfect. It's very hard to make this blinded. Uh, the smell of isopropyl alcohol is very different from uh, anything else you'd be sniffing, like like saline. Based on these two tri- trials, next time I feel sick, you know, I'll definitely try it on myself. It's it's something to keep in the back pocket. Although I'm not a hundred percent convinced. The one thing I found about that trial that made me less convinced was that it was comparing the inhaled isopropyl alcohol to four milligrams of ondan- ondansetron, which just isn't the right dose. You know, the right dose is eight milligrams in your average adult. So that was one of the things that made me a bit less convinced. Um, and just anecdotally from the patients that I've tried it for, it's certainly not a miracle drug. On the other hand, if for whatever reason, the patient hasn't received any anti-emetic uh, at triage or from any of the nurses before you see them, it's very easy just to carry a pile of these in your pocket and just give it to the patient right away. If your nurses are very busy, it has probably zero side effects. And so I think it's worth trying. The other medication that I wanted to talk about specifically for a specific indication is is Haldol for cyclical vomiting and uh, cannabinoid hyperemesis. Um, I understand that there is a trial ongoing in Ontario uh, right now comparing ondansetron to Haldol in cannabis cyclical vomiting syndrome. Again, anecdotally, I've tried 2.5 to 5 milligrams of IV Haldol in the cyclical vomitor where nothing else has worked, and the Haldol works like magic. Dr. Morgenstern, I know the literature isn't robust on this, but what, what does the literature say about using Haldol for cyclical vomiting syndrome? So even before we had trials, I had been using this for a number of years, mostly because if you go way back, studies comparing the different uh, antiemetics, as we referred to before, all said that droperidol was the best, except for we don't have droperidol in Canada. But haloperidol and droperidol are not that different medications. So I, I had been trying this. Really, there was some observational data. And then in 2017, we got our first randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial. Now, this is a trial that only has 33 patients in it. So take it as as a, as you will but they compared haldol 5 milligrams im to placebo and the outcomes were quite convincing the pain and nausea both significantly dropped but the biggest thing was in the group that didn't they got placebo 72% of them ended up being admitted to hospital in a group of cyclic vomitors and in the haldol group only 27% got admitted to hospital that's a that's a big difference uh, in a double blind trial but again 33 patients 
we definitely need to see some more data, but it fits with what we knew. It looks like it's a droperidol replacement for you people who are still stuck in North, North America. Now that I'm in New Zealand, I just use droperidol and anecdotally, at least it, it works fantastically. All right. So when it comes to nausea and vomiting, placebo is probably as good as everything else we use. It's worth trying the isopropyl alcohol aromatherapy because there's zero downside and you can administer it rapidly as you see the patient. For cyclical vomiting syndrome in particular, the studies are tiny, but Haldol may be uh, your go-to in that particular group of people. And just be aware of the side effects of the different antiemetics that you're using. We've talked about the nausea medications in general. I want to zero in on nausea medications given with morphine. I see lots of patients getting ondansetron or metoclopramide or dimenhydrinate, that, that's Gravol, along with their morphine. And some docs do this routinely. And I've always wondered whether this really helps decrease nausea. Um, and if in the case of uh, dimenhydrinate in particular, gravel, that the sedative effects when you combine gravel and morphine, you know, I've always wondered whether that increases your patient's risk of being too sedated for respiratory depression. And, you know, if let's say they have a little bit of renal disease, then suddenly they're stuck in your emergency department for another eight hours when they could be going home uh, because you gave them morphine and gravel. Dr. Lection, should we be adding an antiemetic routinely when we give morphine in the emergency department? So I think this goes back to a point that I raised a little earlier, which is why are people vomiting in the first place? And I think that people are primarily vomiting when they have pain because of the pain. So I think that if we treat the pain appropriately, that the chances that we're going to need an antiemetic on top of that are pretty low. Having said that, um, when I looked at the literature, I really could only find one study dating back to 2006 where adults were given metoclopramide or placebo and then given intravenous morphine. And in fact, the incidence of nausea in that study in both groups was very low, and there was no difference between nausea and vomiting in the group that got the metoclopramide and the group that got the placebo. And if we're saying, which we did earlier, that all of these antiemetics have roughly the same efficacy, then I think that that study may apply to the other antiemetics, the ondansetrons, the gravols, the metoclopramide. So being a creature of habit, it's I'm going to have to work on not giving an antiemetic to somebody who's nauseous or vomiting because of pain. But that's something that I think I'm going to um, try and do is treat the pain first. And then if I've treated the pain and people are feeling comfortable and they're still nauseous, I'll go to an antiemetic. 
Yeah. The one problem with this is that it can create more work for you when you're in the emergency department, because this is something that is routinely requested by our nursing colleagues. But I changed my practice a number of years ago, and I don't routinely use antiemetics anymore, uh, precisely because I, I think there are three RCTs, all very, very small, but I now pull them out and actually show them in two of the three RCTs, there was actually more vomiting in the group that got the antiemetic. Like significant, like three or four or 5% absolute more. Now they weren't statistically significant because the trials were only a hundred people, but there wasn't even a hint of benefit. So, so I've stopped altogether, waited until the pain is under control and then added an antiemetic if necessary. All right. So suffice to say that there's no evidence that we should routinely be giving an antiemetic with morphine in the emergency department, certainly for patients who aren't complaining of nausea and vomiting in the first place. For patients who do have nausea and or vomiting with their painful condition, consider treating the painful condition aggressively with morphine and then reassessing them soon after if they have ongoing vomiting or bad nausea, uh, then consider giving them the antiemetic then. And probably the sedating antiemetics you want to avoid if possible because you're already sedating them with the, the morphine and you don't want to add to the complications in terms of sedation. I do want to talk about nausea and vomiting associated with vertigo in particular. I see tons of CERC being prescribed uh, for BPPV and for labyrinthitis, and I know that some experts recommend dimenhydrinate, again, that's gravol, for vertigo. And these patients really do suffer quite a bit with their, with their vertigo and the nausea associated with it. What medication, if any, should we use in the ED and for home for patients with vertigo associated with nausea and or vomiting? Again, as you get older, you get more conditions. And I woke up one morning and had severe vertigo, which I assume was probably on the basis of BPV. I tried Gravol, didn't work. I called up one of the ENT surgeons at the hospital. He fit me in to his clinic. He did an Epley and it was instantaneous relief. So if it's BPV, I first try an Epley. The few times that I've tried the Epley myself, the I'd say it's about a 50% rate there. The patient tries to vomit on my shoes. <laughs> so treat, pre-treating with one of the antiemetics is not a bad idea in my mind. So even though the evidence is not great, I, I still will try to get something on board uh, before I do one of the maneuvers. Or put on OR boots on over your shoes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I do try the Epley maneuver and then I give, if it doesn't work, I give them instructions for the CMOD. That, that's for BPV. I think that's pretty straightforward. I think most of us will try the maneuvers and unless the patient's really actively vomiting, we can usually avoid needing any antiemetics. Justin, if you do go to an antiemetic, are you going to give Gravol on Dancitron? I do know that there's one study from way back in 2000 that was an RCT that actually compared lorazepam to gravol or vertigo in particular. Not a huge study, but it did show that gravol was better than lorazepam at least. 
what medication are you going to go to if you are going to use a medication in BPPV? And more importantly, actually, I think is the patient with labyrinthitis who has ongoing vertigo, nausea, and vomiting that there's very little else we can do for them. Yeah, so it, it's tricky. There's very little evidence to go on, but as you say, there's there's at least one trial of antihistamine versus uh, lorazepam, where the antihistamine comes out on top, and there's another one comparing beta histine, so another antihistamine, to promethazine. And once again, the beta histine was better than the promethazine. That was uh, in uh, the Journal of Clinical Medicine Research in 2017. So based on that very limited data, I still will use antihistamines as a first line. If you look at long term treatment, the evidence is all over the map, but there is some evidence uh, for beta histine or CERC, which is what we've all been using, which is funny because actually I, I've heard it uh, bashed. There's really not that much evidence for for anything, but the Cochrane review of beta histine, the biggest problem with it is that they're looking at outcomes at three months uh, time, which isn't all that relevant to the emergency department, but they do see a, a small but statistically uh, significant benefit in terms of, uh, of vertigo. Meniere's disease in particular, I think, is a different kettle of fish altogether. Uh, beta histine has been studied in Meniere's and it has no no effect at, uh, at all. But Meniere's, we can actually treat the underlying problem. So uh, asking specifically about tinnitus, uh, hearing loss, and getting them to an ENT to, to specifically treat Meniere's, I think, is another kettle of fish. Uh, but just symptomatic control, I'm still using antihistamines. Yeah, and we should be careful at the very beginning. You know, the evidence is weak, and unfortunately, all of these can cause anticholinergic type symptoms, and these are elderly patients. And so, it's not without harm. And I'm not the Crocken review said that they found no harm, but I'm not sure I, I believe that. Uh, so, I see people ramping up high doses. I still use low doses and try to use it for a short course and warn them about side effects. That's the best thing I can figure out to do, but I'd be interested in your practice, Joel. By and large, the antihistamines are all about equally effective. Now, there are the non-sedating ones, which probably aren't really non-sedating. They're just less sedating. But are any of them better than any of the other ones? And that's a question that hasn't been looked at. Having said all that, I usually send people home with a prescription or tell them to buy some over-the-counter gravol and warn them about the sedating and possibly for the people who are at risk, the anticholinergic side effects. All right. Wow. So that actually changes my practice because, uh, well, in the emergency department, I've, I've been using gravel. And then when I send them home, I, I wasn't giving them anything because I had thought that beta histine, uh, CERC, uh, didn't work. Um, but it sounds like there is some okay evidence to, to suggest that maybe it does work. Um, so for those patients with, not with BPPV, uh, but for those patients with labyrinthitis, um, I think beta histine prescription is, is worth a try. All right. So bottom line there with vertigo is uh, the antihistamines probably do have a small effect. Just be careful of the side effects. One is probably no better than the other choices there are diphenhydramate, which is gravol, or uh, beta histine, which is CERC. I want to move on to some of the more emergent conditions that we see. And the first one I want to talk about is angioedema. And there are a few very expensive drugs 
that have claimed to work for angioedema. And these are really scary patients um, who come in with near airway obstruction. And so it would be nice to have a medication that works for them. Uh, you know, in the old days, we used to use FFP and then came along the C1 esterase inhibitors uh, and I believe more recently, a catabant. Dr. Morgenstern, what medication is your go-to for patients who present to the emergency department with angioedema? So this is another one of those really difficult to answer questions. And, and I think probably the right answer for most of these patients is no medication at all, uh, which we can come back to. I'll start with the easiest answer, Icadabent, the newest uh, drug out there. Although it was very heavily advertised based on some small bias studies early on, we do have one large high quality study now in at least ACE inhibitor angiogema. Uh, that was the CAMEO trial in 2017, and it was clearly negative. There was a placebo-controlled trial in hereditary angioedema, but as far as I can tell, it was never officially published. I just saw a report on it through the European medicine agencies, uh, and it was negative as well, although I haven't actually been able to read the manuscript. Those are all versus placebo. There's no trials compared to uh, comparing it to standard treatment. Uh, so I think that one's pretty clear. It's a new expensive drug. It hasn't shown any benefits. So I think there's no room for it in clinical practice right now. But you know, there may be, still be some room for, uh, for some future trials. Okay, so acatabant is uh, extremely expensive and there's no good evidence that it's effective. So we can pretty much put that one aside. Then there's the C1 esterase inhibitors. For example, there's a Baronert, there's Sinrise, and there's Hegarda. Those are the names of the ones in Canada. I know that those medications have also been pushed very hard by the pharmaceutical companies uh, and that they're very expensive and aren't available in every hospital. What's the evidence for those medications? So unlike Acadabant, the these trials were positive, but I think it's if you're going to start using this drug, it's worth actually looking at the trial. So they're, they're small RCTs. And even though they're claimed to be positive, this is that statistical versus clinically significant that Joel was talking about right at the beginning, because essentially they change, depending on the trial, the resolution of symptoms from something like four hours down to two hours. Everybody got better anyway. It's just you were slightly better a couple hours uh, earlier using these new drugs. And, and it was not a big difference. We're not talking about a full day. We're, we're talking about half an hour in some trials and two hours in another trial. Uh, for example, I think the biggest trial was the IMPACT trial. It's industry-sponsored. It compared C1 esterase to, to placebo. And, and C1 esterase was better. The patient's symptoms resolved in half an hour, but the control group was better in an hour and a half. And everybody is fine. So considering these drugs cost over $5,000 a dose, is one hour of symptom relief really worth it? My guess is no. The big problem with these is I have, I have not been able to find any great data on prognosis, but I'll tell you, I have not had to intubate a patient with angioedema yet. I know what happens, but the vast majority of these patients, and we see them fairly often, just get better on their own. There may be a subset where we might want to use these, these medications, but it's a very small subset that goes on to have airway obstruction. And so I think the right answer for most of these patients is watchful waiting. And the honest truth is the ones who are sick enough, the ones who really need an airway, waiting an hour for pharmacy to figure out where this expensive medication is, is probably not good enough. And so uh, that's the time to practice your awake intubation skills. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that when we reach for these drugs, it's a case of our anxiety more than the patient's problem. That when somebody comes in like this with angioedema and we look at them, 
I know that my heart rate goes up, my anxiety level goes up, and I want to be able to do something. And like in a lot of conditions, at least some doctors have trouble just sitting on their hands and letting nature take its course when we know that most of the time that course is going to be resolution without us doing very much. So the use of these drugs, I think, is partly at least driven by our anxiety levels. We should be a little bit careful, though, while it's probably true that the vast majority of patients will get better on their own, there certainly is a subset of patients who will obstruct their airway. And so for those patients who come in where their tongue is filling with their mouth, you know, that's the kind of situation, you know, like you said, Justin, that we want to be thinking about awake intubation, that we want to call for help. Those are really scary patients. And I think the answer there is to intubate the patient. By the, and like you said, is by the time we get the medication, uh, it would be too late anyhow. None of these medications have shown any mortality benefit. And so there really is, in the end, not very much role for any of them in the emergency department. The last medication, if you want to call it that, is FFP. Now, we know that FFP is a blood product and has all the problems associated like any blood product has. Does the literature support the use of FFP in angioedema at all? So as far as I know, there's not a single trial. So who knows? The idea is that there's some C1 esterase in there, uh, but you'd have to give about 50 times the volume of these C1 esterase uh, concentrates to get the same amount. Again, I, I think if you have somebody that sick, I want to have my entire team focusing on their airway and getting that ready rather than running around trying to find medications that have no evidence and no help. That's not to say that it wouldn't be great if we had a medication to help us. It's not to say that somebody shouldn't be studying it. But for, but for now, we have better things to be doing in the resuscitation room than searching for medications that may or may not help a patient. All right. So for the patient with angioedema, if it is uh, sort of a mild angioedema, time will cure them. If it's a very severe angioedema, we really should just be concentrating on the airway and not the medications. Let's move on to another true emergency, and that is hyperkalemia. Now, we covered hyperkalemia in great detail in episode 86, uh, but just in case there are folks out there who are still using k Justin, could you review for us the literature when it comes to k in terms of its efficacy for hyperkalemia and its safety profile? Yeah, absolutely. So I love this one because it, it shows how far evidence-based medicine has has come over the last half century. So k came onto the market in the 1960s and there were three trials. Two of them had no control group in, you know, like 10 patients or something like that. And the other one had no statistics at all. But actually, when you look at the, the graphs, it compared sorbitol alone to sorbitol plus k And actually, the sorbitol alone group the potassium dropped faster than in the group with, with K-exalate. And based on those three trials, so no evidence that it uh, lowers potassium at all, it was put on the market and it's never been studied again since. 
There's a Cochrane review in 2005 that concludes exactly that. They concludes that the potassium absorbing resins have never been found to be effective in the first hours of treatment. So there's really no evidence that they help your patient, but there is some evidence of harm. There are a large number of case reports out there and case series describing patients with KXLate-associated colonic necrosis. In fact, the FDA did uh, issue a warning back in 2011, uh, cautioning against the use of the drug specifically for that reason. Now, of course, case reports aren't definitive, but once again, we're left with in a bit of an evidence vacuum. And you know, you have to make a decision. And I think in this case, the decision is really easy. There's no evidence at all that this is going to help your patient. There are reports of harm. And maybe most importantly, we have other options, maybe safer options. So in my mind, it's easy. I don't think KX Lite has any role in emergency medicine, except maybe in a study situation, if somebody wants to fill in these giant gaps in our, in our knowledge. Dr. Lection, any role for KX Lite in the ED for hyperkalemia? No, but I think that the use of KXLite is a, a really good example of how long it takes us to change practice and how, how medications can come on the market, especially the older ones, with almost, as Justin said, almost no evidence at all or no evidence, and yet becomes part of standard practice. Let's move on to another sort of emergency medication, if you want to call it a medication, and that is oxygen. And let's talk about oxygen in acutely ill patients, MI, COPD, stroke, uh, traumatic, brain, traumatic brain injury, sepsis, cardiac arrest. Now, when I did my oral EM exams many years ago, for every sick patient, we'd be sure to mention right off the bat, you know, we'd say, Move the patient to the resuscitation room, apply cardiac monitor, order two large bore anticubital IVs, and supplemental oxygen. But things have changed when it comes to oxygen therapy, again, for a variety of conditions. It's been studied in MI, in stroke, in TBI, in sepsis, and even in cardiac arrest. So in case our listeners haven't adapted their practices yet, Dr. Lection, can you review for us the harms of hyperoxia? In other words, when should we be giving supplemental oxygen to our sick, sick patients? This is an example of something that, you know, intuitively makes sense. Why wouldn't you give oxygen to people? What's the harm in doing that? Let's leave aside the case of um, COPD, who, where we do know that there are harms. But in these other cases, it just seems this is a no-brainer. Let's just slap on the oxygen, get that O2 set up to 96, 98%. It's got to be beneficial for them. How can it not be? But that's not what the literature is now saying. So there was a systematic review in heart that looked at 8,000 people with suspected MI. There was no difference in risk of in-hospital or 30-day mortality with people who got the supplemental oxygen or who didn't. Now, you know, you want to maintain an oxygen level before the curve starts to fall, but if people come in at 91%, 90%, that seems to be just fine. And the same thing goes with a study that looked at people with stroke, that again, supplemental oxygen 
just doesn't seem to provide any benefit and in fact may lead to lower survival rates. So this for me is a real game changer. Yeah, I just want to actually add on to what's been said For MI, there was no benefit for oxygen therapy, but there's been a few meta-analyses of uh, critically ill patients. You know, there's numbers like for every 1% increase in pulse oximetry, there was a 25% increase in the relative risk of in-hospital mortality and a 17% increase the relative risk of mortality at the longest follow-up. So oxygen might actually be killing patients. I think we need to be really careful with who we give oxygen to, especially those critically ill patients who we kind of used to assume that they all need oxygen. We really need to take a close look uh, at their oxygenation status and really only be giving oxygen for for those below 90%, maybe 91%, 92%, depending on which studies you read. I think we should be a little bit careful about some of the observational trials because I think that what you're seeing is probably a marker for high quality critical care because people who are having their vents actively managed don't sit at a oxygen saturation of 100%, whereas people who have just their oxygen cranked and are put in the corner uh, sit with much higher oxygen. Uh, So I think some of the mortality data is probably based on confounders, but there is no reason to be cranking the oxygen up that high. I I never reach for oxygen unless I'm seeing numbers in in the 80s or if I'm getting ready for an intubation and we know that pre-oxygenation is really important. Uh, So even though the data may have some confounders in there, I think it's strong enough to say for sure, stop, treat it like a drug. We should not be overdosing patients. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, of course, there's uh, some exceptions. Don't forget, you know, carbon monoxide poisoning, for example, where we are cranking the oxygen. Um, but for the sepsis patient, for the trauma patients, uh, for really a lot of the sick patients that we see in the emergency department, again, oxygen should be treated like a drug. And like all drugs, there's potential side effects. And while the mortality data might look pretty scary, as Justin mentioned, it might be um, exaggerated a little bit. Either way, we really don't want to be giving oxygen to patients who don't really need it. We've covered a potpourri of common and serious medical conditions that we see in the ED. In part one, we covered the commonly used analgesics. And in this part two, we covered the antiemetics. We covered some expensive medications for angioedema, some cheap medications like oxygen, and some dangerous medications like KXLate. I was surprised to learn that the evidence is not great for so many medications we commonly use and then I should be thinking of the, the safety and the downsides of these medications a bit more before I pull the trigger on using them. For some things like nausea, I might consider more often not giving anything. And uh, if I am going to use something, I might start with uh, sniffing the alcohol swab and definitely think carefully about the potential side effects of the antiemetics. For pain, I think I'm going to mostly be sticking to acetaminophen and NSAIDs for most patients and for most conditions uh, with the addition of morphine, usually without an antiemetic for the really painful conditions. Calcium channel blocker ointment is going to be my go-to for anal fissures and hemorrhoids and dexamethasone for really sore throats. All that being said, the evidence is continuously evolving for ED drugs. And I'd like to know, 
actually from you guys, where the best place to go for finding good quality evidence for drugs is that I don't have to read volumes and volumes of uh, nitty gritty detail, but get the bottom line of of, uh, the drugs that I should and shouldn't be using in the ED. Where do you guys suggest that uh, we go for good quality evidence for for ED drugs? So unfortunately, I don't think there's like an easy go-to source for everything. I don't have a place that I can just easily search on Shift and immediately know all the evidence about a drug. But there are a few resources that I turn to regularly when I'm trying to consider the evidence for, for a drug. I think one of the best resources out there is the Therapeutics Initiative. It's out of the University of British Columbia. They they had lost their funding for a while, uh, but I'm getting emails again, so they must be back. And they do a great job of reviews with no industry funding. Another one that I think is really great is the Therapeutics Education Collaborative. They put out some really good reviews. They're mostly focused on family practice, but a lot of them apply to us. They're published in the Canadian Family Physician, but they're also available online and you can get them emailed to you. Uh, And I think another good resource would be the Medical Letter as a journal type publication because it doesn't take any industry funding and they do a pretty good job giving impartial reviews of the literature in pretty short digestible write-ups. My only problem with that source is that it's often focused on very new medications that aren't available yet in Canada. And often, you know, I really think it's often better to be using older medications with long track records. So some of the issues give you no immediately usable information. The other place that I go which is much less known, at least in North America, is um, Prescare International. This is the English language translation of the French drug bulletin called La Revue Prescare. And it is rigorous, and it also is not afraid to give a definitive opinion based on the evidence so far about drugs. And it does it... It has a five or six level classification starting from, you know, every, this should be in the water to um, this shouldn't be, shouldn't have been on the market at all. It gives me an idea, especially when there are other medications around for um, an, a problem. It gives me an idea of whether or not this drug is even worth learning any more about. That's my first choice. Cochrane reviews are also quite good. And finally, preface this by saying I won't get any royalties if the um, booklet that Cape produced in 2000 that I was the author of does actually come back out. I think that that would be a really good source for looking for the medications that we commonly use in the emergency department. Fantastic. So we'll have links to all of those drug review resources. And if the CAPE one comes out, we'll add it to the list. Thank you both so much for your insights. After thinking about the important concepts that we reviewed at the beginning of uh, part one, uh, in terms of bias and uh, under-reporting of harms, and in terms of uh, p-values and lack of replication of studies, uh, I think that that was a, a really nice way of kind of setting the stage for why we really need to be skeptical of of a lot of uh, drug trials. And in the end, these very common things that we see every day really don't have definitive evidence for many drugs. And hopefully, 
uh, with all of us being aware of, of all these issues um, and understanding what the evidence is for all these common things, uh, that moving forward in, in future research uh, and practice patterns, uh, that we all kind of work together to find the drugs that do work for our patients and uh, relieve their pain and suffering. So thank you guys for uh, your great contributions. Yep. And thanks, Anton, for um, facilitating this. I mean, I think it's really important that we discuss this kind of issue and realize how much we actually don't know. Thanks for having me. I think it just reminds us, always use the lowest dose, always use the shortest uh, time, and just be cautious when anytime we're prescribing. Well, unfortunately, Anton, there probably isn't one really easy go-to source. I don't have a place that I can just search on Shift and immediately know the good evidence of harm and bevin... Uh, of harm and bevin... <laughs> Jesus. Hey, we've come up with a new word. I like that. Bevidence. Where there's ev- evidence of benefit. Bevidence. <laughs> That's great. Mm-hmm.